how wonderful it is to stand forgiven at the cross. Praise God for eternal life. This morning we will finish our study in John chapter 12. It's amazing that uh, some things can be a blessing to some and a cursing to others. An answered prayer for some and maybe cause some angst in others. And I think of the snow that we see outside, and that's an answer to Lindsay and my prayers. Uh, And, you know, you may say, well, you may not have to shovel it. And I do, and we do, and uphill, too, if you've ever been to my house to see that. But uh, Lindsay's saying preach it because the the snow, uh, we love it, and looks like we may get some more of it. And, by the way, it does beat mowing the yard every week in 9,500 degree temperature in the summertime in Florida, and then in 80 degree temperature every other week in the wintertime in Florida. So I'll take it. Nevertheless, um, John chapter 12, we're going to begin reading um, where we where we started last Lord's Day for the, for the context. <clears throat> Let's see here. We'll start in verse 35. Chapter 12, the Gospel of John, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And then our texts for us this morning, beginning in verse 44, as I pray. Father, help me as I seek to be faithful to your word, exposit your word, O God, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. We come here to verse 44, but this is the end of the account in John's Gospel of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. When we get to chapter 13, we're going to see uh, a more private ministry with the disciples. And here, the, the betrayal was, was close. The garden was in view. The cup of God's wrath, wrath would soon be poured out. Jesus gives a final call to believe in Him and to follow Him, to be saved from God's wrath, and to enjoy fellowship with the Son of God and reconciliation with God. This comes on the heels of some stern warnings to the religious leaders. 
the religious leaders that rejected Christ. And he ends with a final challenge and a tender appeal to those in the crowd so that they may believe in the light and be rescued from darkness. We have in our section for us this morning a brief summarizing conclusion of themes that we have seen through our study thus far. Jesus as one sent by the Father, in unity with the Father, the contrast of light and darkness, judgment, eternal life in the last day, and eternal life now. So as we conclude chapter 12 and go to chapter 13, we come to the main transition in this gospel. And we have several points for us this morning. First, we see once again that Jesus is united with the Father, in oneness with the Father. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Only five times in the Gospels, it is recorded that Jesus cried out. Two times from his sufferings on the cross. Once at the Feast of Tabernacles, when he called people to come to him, for he is living water, and he was offering living water, if you remember, in chapter 7. And then when he called Lazarus from the tomb, in, in chapter 11 called forth, he cried out. And here in chapter 12, he cried out and said this. There are statements um, that Jesus said loudly and, and cried out. The same verb we see with John the Baptist when he preached. Everything Jesus said is important because everything Jesus says is from God himself, from the Son of God. Yet there is more emphasis on what Jesus is saying when he begins with such such words as, as, truly, truly, I say to you. We, We have covered that. Truly, truly, I say to you. Or, amen and amen, I say. Or when Jesus cries out and says something. Here again, Jesus draws out the unity and closeness of himself with the Father. To trust one is to trust the other. To reject the Son of God is to reject God who sent His Son. Remember what Jesus says, uh, John 14, which we have not covered in our study yet. Nevertheless, John chapter 14, verse 7, He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Again, this Uh, oneness with the Father. Jesus is united with the Father. And we see that Jesus takes it a step further in chapter 12 of verse 45. He who 
sees me, sees the one who has, who sent me. So Jesus says this to those who are in the crowd, those who are there. He is in, remember, he is in their uh, very presence. And he says, he who has seen me has seen the one who sent me. Another statement of equality with the Father. Again and again, we are seeing this. We are seeing Jesus saying he is God. Jesus saying that he is one with the Father. Unity with the Father. Another statement of his divinity. And the same thing is true then as it is now about the reaction to Jesus Christ. And I was reminded of this the other day when I was listening to a sermon. And he said, the the preacher said, and I agree, the most hated man who has ever lived is Jesus Christ. People most times don't have a problem with Jesus as a man or Jesus in the manger. But yet there was problems with Jesus in the manger, we remember, years ago. But when Jesus, when they understand that Jesus is God, and they, when Jesus makes these claims of Him being divine, that's where the problem is. The problem with His divinity. And when He demands things of people, His Lordship, that's when people say, no, no, no. Well, you can forget about that. The same thing true then, the same thing true now. Jesus was saying He was the Messiah. Jesus was saying, I am God. The Son of God, He was saying. And the same thing is true today. So secondly for us, we see the illumination of the Savior. The illumination of the Savior. Time and time again in our study recently, we have seen such a contrast. Light and darkness. We see this over and over again. But here is the illumination of the Savior. I have come as light into the world, the Lord says, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Here, there is no definite article, as we noticed that was present uh, four times before in verse 35, I believe it is in verse 36, when Jesus calls himself the light. We saw that, the light, definite article, referring to himself. We do not see that here. And the word as is not in the, in the original either. I, he, the word I is emphatic here, as in, as in verse 47, 49, and 50, his purposes are made clear. So, in other words, what the Lord is saying, if we were to summarize it, if we were saying, okay, he's saying, I, light, have come. I, light, perfect tense, arrived and remaining, I, light, have come into the world. Remember how Jesus said one of the I am statements. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just as the light of the world and light in this world is truth we have covered several times in our study in the Gospel of John. So we will not go into intense detail on that in this point, yet we see in this verse once again the contrast. Light 
darkness. Jesus, as the light, has come into darkness, into this world. Apart from Christ, this world remains in darkness, and people remain in darkness. The light did come into the world of darkness, but he was despised and rejected by man, by the world of darkness. In John chapter 1, verse 5, remember, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Without Christ illuminated Himself to us, we will remain in darkness. We would have remained in darkness. And those who are not following Jesus Christ have no light at all spiritually. The only reason we as Christians are no longer in darkness is because the light of this world has illuminated our hearts. He has changed us into lights in this world. Remember, I've referenced this several times. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The responsibility, Paul continues, the responsibility for those light in this world who are light, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Well, who defines what the deeds of darkness are? Who, de- who defines that? What is darkness? And this is different than the darkness we, we talked about Wednesday night. For those who have uh, been there and, or those who have attended via Zoom, we're talking about the assurance of, of our salvation, how to cultivate that, and that believers can struggle with that at times. And it's been, I heard from a, a few people that it, it has been a real encouragement and a blessing in their life to go through that, to study that out a little further. But at times, as a Christians, we, we can feel this, this darkness or this dark cloud in our lives. We feel as if, God, where are you type of darkness? Even though he is there. But sometimes we have to walk through this darkness for our sanctification. This is different than the darkness, speaking of here, these deeds of darkness, which is sin, the deeds of darkness, that the children of light are not to be walking in. But who defines what these are? Culture? No. Culture says, or society says, what is good is is evil, what is evil is good. The government? No. By no means no. The, The school system? No. The media? They'd like to think that they do, but no. The Word of God does. That is what God defines what deeds of darkness are. Verse 13 and 14, But all these things have become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Still in Ephesians. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then we, we remember Colossians chapter 1. I'll just reference it for you. You don't need to turn there. Verse 13 and 14. 
He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then a reference from 1 Peter, which we will go to tonight, Lord willing, unless the snow comes early. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this who we are. We are who we are. This description of, of Christians. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And how marvelous it is to be in His light. And 1 Peter chapter 2 goes really right into where we are in our study. The second part of verse 46 of chapter 12. I have come as light into this world. Remember, Jesus, uh, uh, I, light, have come into this world. So that, for this reason, everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Everyone who believes in Christ will not remain in darkness. In their, in their sin, in their ignorance, in their rejection, their stiff-arming of Christ. They will not remain there. By definition, if we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we will not remain in darkness, but we'll walk in the light. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We have promises from a God who does not lie. It is impossible, the Scripture says, for, for God to lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. So we have this if-then statement. If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. This illumination of the Savior. As we as Christians, we continue to have this illumination in our lives. As we study the Word of God, as we pray, God, help me to understand this. Illuminate my mind. Uh, let this be shed abroad in my heart that I may understand Your Word. And Jesus did not only come to show the contrast of Himself as the light and sinful humanity as darkness. He came to lift us out of darkness and make us sons of light. Or for you ladies, we'll say daughters of light. Lifting us out of darkness, yet we still live here in this world. J.C. Ryle, he summarizes it this way. I have come into a world full of darkness and sin to be the source and center of life, peace, holiness, happiness to mankind, so that everyone who receives and believes in me may be delivered from darkness and walk in full light. Does that mean we always feel we're, we're at peace? Does that mean we're, we always feel happy? No, we understand that. We don't as believers. A lot of times we are sorrowful as Christians. We are called to uh, endure and to walk through trials and tribulations as Christians, and we still have remaining sin. None of us have arrived until we get to the other side, till we get to glory. 
life and peace. Consider this. Consider all the ways people without Christ search for life and search for peace and never obtain it. There's a multitude of ways that that I searched out for, for peace before I became a Christian. I won't, I'll spare you the, the details of that. But anyone who has walked with the Lord or any stretch of time and lived without the Lord any stretch of time knows that you search for things in places that you could not find this, this peace or this life. But Christ offers it. Illumination of the Savior. Because He is one, united with the Father, God in three Persons, the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, as He continues to claim His divinity, we understand further and further. But thirdly for us, thirdly for us, as we find here in our study, the reception or rejection of His words. The reception or rejection of His words. He continues and says, If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Same truth as in verse 46, but a different emphasis. Hearing has the same emphasis as we found back in verse 25 of chapter 5. I'll just reference it for us really quick. Chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, and there's that, that, that statement by Christ saying, listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. It is a hearing with understanding. I mean, we hear things all the time. Some of us have great hearing. Some of us do not. But we hear things all all the time. But hearing with understanding and hearing with appreciation is different. Hearing with responding to God. Hears, hearing his saying and keeping them. Hearing and appreciation goes hand in hand with keeping his word. Those who understand what Jesus is saying yet do not obey what it says are, are condemned, ultimately. We need to keep in mind the emphasis here is, is on his mission. When he says, I did not come, uh, I do not judge them, but I did not come. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So if someone were to take this and try to do some kind of gymnastics with the text, or take this and try to rip it out of context, and say, oh, look at this, Jesus will never judge anyone because of this one verse. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Wow, everybody must be fine. No, we look at the other verses, and we understand this in context. We understand his mission to save the world. And we know from other texts that Jesus is referred to as judge. And I'll reference those for us right now. I'll give you the text and I'll just read them so you don't have to turn there. 
John chapter 5, 22, 27, and 30. John chapter 8, verse 16 20, and 26. And John chapter 9, verse 39 through 41. Now let me just read these for us. John chapter 5, verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, says the Lord. And in verse 27, And He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. There's another text. And in verse 30 of chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own initiative. There's this oneness with the Father. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see that? And then chapter 8, again, verse 16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, says the Lord, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. And then chapter 8, verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And in chapter 9, verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see become blind. You remember who he said this here to here, the religious uh, hypocritical leaders. And, and he says, we'll, we'll continue on here in verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. And then Jesus says in Matthew 25, I'll read this for us as well, verse 31, 32, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and of all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his, on his left. Even Paul says, Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. So, all that to say that Jesus is not denying here in verse 47 of his future role as judge. The emphasis is what he has come into this world for. I've come light into this world, not to judge the world, but to save the world. To redeem sinners. To reconcile sinners back to God. The judgment is on those who reject Jesus Christ. This is something we've studied before too. Remember John 3.16. Most of us here know that verse, but it's the verse afterwards, a couple of verses afterwards that that, uh, oftentimes we just glance over. But we've studied these uh, many moons ago, but I'll, I'll reference it again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world, verse 17, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe in has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So here we have this, and we have... Verse 
uh, in chapter 12, we have verse 47 and, and 48 together. If we read them together, we say, ah, aha, I see, I see. Verse 47, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I come to the judge of the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So we see here this rejection or reception. Rejection or reception of him, of his word. And really, when one rejects his word, they're really rejecting him. Really rejecting Christ. The word rejection here takes the meaning of setting him aside. Rendering him null and void. A very strong expression here. Barclay translates it as saying, He who completely disregards me as of no account. But he says, The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. The very word of Christ, which one rejects, will confront him and accuse him to the Father on that last day. But those who who reject Jesus will not receive his word, and do not receive his word, are under judgment already. John chapter 3. Those who continually reject Jesus, continually reject his word, will be judged on that last day. The word I spoke. Well, what is Christ referring to here? Well, the gospel that Jesus preached. The message he shared, the goodness, the good news, rather, he offered the goodness of Christ as well. The grace and mercy he gives willingly to those who follow him. And we who are Christians are recipients of that. And speaking of the, the last day, Tom Schreiner says this, Just as Christ is the chosen and honored one of God and was so honored at his resurrection, so too believers will be vindicated on that last day as well. What is true of Christ is true of his people. And as we'll study, if Lord willing, with me tonight, he is a living stone and we as Christians are living stones. He is chosen and we as Christians have been chosen by God. He is the chosen one, Christ, and we as Children of God have been chosen by Him. As Christians, we will not undergo the horrors of judgment, but the glory of approval by God. Why? Because we did great things? No. Because we're clothed in His righteousness and His righteousness alone. Christians, we ought to live for eternal things, live for the things of heaven. The present form of this world is passing away, as Paul said. Jesus spoke of the last day. Christ will return to this world. No matter, uh, as people mock out there and mock, and as the scripture says, they will mock. He will return and he will judge the world. Every one of us will stand before God individually. This world is under judgment already. We live in a nation under judgment for a continual rejection of Jesus Christ. 
Day after day after day, month after month, year after year, century after century after century. Continued rejection of his son. And we say, there's so much evidence in our society that we have been given over. And again, I reference Romans 1, 18 through 32. But we look at the leaders of our society. All we have to do, seriously, and I don't mean to mock, is hear what they say and listen how they talk. And what other sense can we make of such things? A given over society. I could list here of the five things, six, seven, eight, nine, ten things that I have read in the news the last week. You've probably seen the same things. And it's, we ask, how in the world could this be? As Christians, we live with that last day in mind, knowing that our sins have been paid for at the cross, that we have been rescued out of darkness, and we are possessors of eternal life. And we follow Christ now, and He leads us home. He leads us to our home. But we know that those without Christ are not ready for the last day and will pay eternally in judgment. All all without Christ will face Jesus as judge. The, The gavel is already down. The evidence is there. The verdict has been given. And as we have in our society corrupt judges and judges that could be paid off, God is very unlike that. God is holy and he is a just judge and he is a good judge. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But I like how Steve Lawson puts this when he, when he speaks of this. He says, you can settle out of court now. And what does he mean? You can be pardoned. You can be set free. How? By turning from sin and turning to and trusting Jesus. Jesus alone for one's salvation. So in reality, the dividing line there, receiving Christ or rejecting Christ, receiving what he says in his word or saying rejecting his word, brings us to our next point, the authority of his words. The authority of Jesus' words. He says in verse 49, I did not speak of my own initiative, but... The Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. The point here being the the saving word originated with God and not with man. The entirety of Jesus' message. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, if you want to look that up later. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 and 19. But again, we have here before us the unity of, Uh, uh, between God the Father and God the Son. We see Jesus, the sinless Savior, in perfect harmony and obeying the will of the Father. Richard Phillips puts it this way, Jesus has asked and demanded nothing more than what God the Father has authorized Him to ask and demand. Does it seem extreme for Jesus to call for faith in Him as the Son of God and, and Savior? then realize that God has authorized him to call for such faith. Does it bother some that that Christianity insists on salvation comes only through Jesus? 
But this claim is made by the authority of God Himself who has provided one Savior, one way, one road through Jesus. And as application, as as Christians, we claim this same authority when speaking to a dead and dying world. We don't say, well, I'm going to put my weapon down and I'm going to try to communicate using other means and try to facilitate a conversation and try to use all these worldly schemes to try to get someone to make a decision or twist their arm. No, we have the authoritative Word of God. And we unleash it and we speak it and we leave the results up to the Lord. But we have His authority. We stand on the authoritative Word of God for all of life, for all of our life. Just as God the Father has given Jesus what to say and what to speak, the same is true for us. And we say, I I want to share the gospel with someone, I just don't know what to say. We say with the the Bible, we we have scriptures, we we can go to Romans Road, we can use the law, we can share what Jesus said in John chapter 3, just sharing the scriptures. God has entrusted us with His Word which is the inspired word, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We don't use man's clever techniques, trinkets, to debate and discuss. We are to unashamedly speak forth the word of God. We seek to build bridges with people, form bonds with acquaintances, but we don't hide the fact that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ with a message of how lost sinners can be reconciled to God through Him, through Christ. Lights in a dark world, not to say, well, we'll just sit at home then and we'll be lights under a basket. No, go stand and speak the Word of God. Many applications we could say with that as well. Sometimes we don't know what to say in a given situation or in a gospel opportunity. That's probably true of all of us. I don't even know what to say here. Here's an open door. I've even prayed for this. and I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Well, we pray, rely on the Holy Spirit, and we leave the results up to God. And we're disciplined in our study. We're disciplined in what the Scripture says, disciplined in, in, in evangelism. But we leave the results up to God and we rely on the Holy Spirit. We don't want to rely on the arm of the flesh. If we do that, we might as well not say anything at all. And our lives better reflect the truth that we speak. We ought to speak as those who represent the King of Kings. So we have Jesus as united with the Father, we have the illumination of the Savior. There is a reception or rejection of his words, the authority of his words. And then we have finally in the will of God for the glory of God. Living in the will of God for the glory of God. Verse 50. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. God's word here, we have two 
two, uh, two ways, two headings we could use here, a general focus and a specific focus. God's Word is, is light and life, this general focus. We turn to God's Word, very applicatory for us. We turn to God's Word. Um, we turn to God from our sins, and we turn to, to His Word, and we set His Word before us as a lamp for our feet and a, and a light for our path. And this specific focus, the gospel, specific commands in the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus' first recorded words in, in the ministry, in his ministry, in Mark chapter 1. And then in, in uh, the book of Acts, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So his commandment here has a general focus and a specific focus. His commandment is eternal life. Leon Morris says, It is God's great love acting upon us and acting upon us for our salvation. God's commands bring eternal life. And we say, consider the source. We consider the source, the source being God from His Word. We remember John chapter 6, verse 66. That's a hard verse to to uh, forget, when Jesus fed the multitudes, and he began to, they began to grumble at his teachings. They were fed, fat and happy, and then he started teaching. They began to grumble at what he said. Many disciples that were disciples in name only withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus said to the twelve, "You do not want to go away, also, do you?" And remember what Simon Peter answered with a tremendous statement. Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. To who shall we go, Christian? Where do we go? He has words of eternal life. We go to Christ. Those without Christ, perhaps. Where do I go? Go to the Lord. He has the words of eternal life. Jesus lived in the will of God and for the glory of God. I'm reminded of of the following. What he said, what he did, where he went, and how he lived was always as the Father has told me. Obedience to the Father were Jesus' ultimate vindication. And that was uh, from Richard Phillips, and it reminds us of, perhaps you've heard this before, he continues. But the story is told of a virtuoso pianist who performed his first concert at Carnegie Hall. The crowd was awed at his playing and demanded an encore. It was the place went wild, standing, shouting. Afterward, nearly the entire audience rose to their feet, cheering. But when asked to go out and take a final bow, the pianist refused. When challenged about this, he peered between the curtains and pointed to a small man in the balcony who remained seated. He said, do you see that man, that one man there? And the, the crowd that was around him, those who were egging him on, saying, come on, get out there, go. When he stands and applauds, then I will take my bow. When he stands. And the, the man was Seated up there, cross-armed, looking. Only when he stands, I will take 
my bow. But it's only one man, they replied. I mean, they were getting angry with him. Only one man. Why? And the pianist said, because that man is my teacher. So it was with Jesus, who ultimately vindicated himself by his obedience to the will of God the Father. The world might hate him, and it did, and it does, and might scoff at his teaching, and still does. But he would content himself with the applause of one person only, his heavenly Father. Let this application not go over your head, brother and sister. And throughout his ministry, the Father gave his applause to Jesus over and over. In fact, earlier that very day, God had audibly expressed his approval from heaven. Jesus feeling great anxiety over the cross, or great horror, we would say, over the cross, prayed, Father, glorify your name. And the Father spoke from above, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That was all the vindication that Jesus ever needed. The the same should be true for us, Phillips continues. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, verse 31. So let us resolve to speak and to live as to be able to say, what I have done, I have done as God has taught me in His Word. If we can say that, we will not need the applause of the world and we will not fear its scorn. For in the end, it will be revealed that the only one opinion that really matters will be God's. That of the God who holds eternity in His hand and gives eternal life to all who receive His blessed Son. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You that You give continual illumination to the child of God, to us who who know You. You continue to Uh, help us understand who you are and help us understand your word. And we um, cannot ignore the reception or rejection of the words of Christ. That is the dividing line. God, we're reminded today of the authority of your words. We're reminded how we ought to live and who we are to live for, for you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.